This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. Russia broadened its evacuation of occupied southern Ukraine. Vladimir Saldo, the Russian-installed leader of the Kherson region, told 70,000 people living within 15 kilometers of the eastern bank of the Dnieper River to flee. The Ukrainian government says the evacuations represent the forced deportation of its citizens. Russia claims that Ukraine is planning to flood parts of Kherson by destroying a dam. Meanwhile, Russian missile strikes continued across Ukraine, with at least one civilian dying in Mykolaiv, a city in the south. Brazil's Supreme Court told police to clear hundreds of roadblocks set up by supporters of Jair Bolsonaro following his defeat to Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva in the presidential election on Sunday. Mr. Bolsonaro has yet to concede defeat, though his communications minister, Fabio Fara, told Reuters that the right-wing incumbent would publicly accept the result in an address to the nation later on Tuesday. Israelis headed to the polls for the fifth time since 2019. The race for control of the Knesset is neck-and-neck between right-wing parties supporting Benjamin Netanyahu's return as prime minister and centrist and left-wing parties who do not. Mr. Netanyahu was forced from office in 2021 amid corruption accusations. I hope we will finish the day with a smile, but it's up to the people, he said. BP recorded profits of $8.2 billion in the third quarter, compared with $3.3 billion in the same period last year, as sky-high energy prices continued to bolster the oil and gas sector. On Monday, President Joe Biden implied he could slap a windfall tax on the soaring revenues of American oil and gas companies. The extension of a similar levy is being considered in Britain. Pfizer increased its forecast for sales of its COVID-19 vaccine this year by $2 billion, assuaging market concerns about weakening demand for pandemic-related medicines. The American pharmaceutical company said it might continue to raise the price of its vaccine, developed with German firm BioNTech, to offset dips in demand, while stating that sales of its booster jab against the Omicron subvariant remain healthy. Elon Musk, now the CEO of Twitter, which he bought for $44 billion last week, dissolved the social media company's board, making himself its sole director. It was reported that he intends to start charging the site's verified blue-tick users $20 a month. Mr. Musk had already alarmed Twitterati by tweeting, then deleting, a link to a conspiracy theory about an attack at the home of Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of America's House of Representatives. Factory output in Asia weakened in October, according to business survey data. Manufacturing activity declined in Malaysia, South Korea, and Taiwan as China's zero-COVID policy weakened demand and disrupted supply chains. On Monday, Shanghai Disney abruptly locked its gates to contain an outbreak of COVID-19, trapping visitors inside until they can show a negative test. Rides, at least, are still operating. And fact of the day. 
45,000, the estimated number of jobs that American tech firms have shed this year. And now here's a deeper look at the day ahead. Another jumbo rate rise from the Fed. America's Federal Reserve is widely expected to raise interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point on Wednesday, its fourth straight increase of that magnitude. If it does so, the Fed will have lifted short-term rates from a floor of 0% in March to 3.75%, its sharpest tightening since the early 1980s, as it tries to rein in inflation, which is above an annual rate of 8%. Given that markets have priced in the rate increase, the focus will be on what Jerome Powell, the Fed's chairman, says in a subsequent news conference. Look for hints about whether he is ready to slow the pace of tightening, perhaps teeing the Fed up for a half-point rate increase at its next meeting in December. But he will also no doubt explain that future decisions depend on data, leaving the Fed wiggle room to deliver yet another jumbo rate rise if inflation remains uncomfortably high. Africa's Energy Problem This week, delegates, lobbyists, and bag carriers begin trickling into Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt for COP27, the United Nations' annual climate summit. The event, which officially kicks off on Sunday, is being advertised as Africa's COP, with a focus on the continent. As delegates haggle over how to reduce global emissions, they should remember how little energy Africa uses. An average person in sub-Saharan Africa, excluding South Africa, uses about 180 kilowatts a year, less than the average American fridge. If Africa is to grow richer, its energy use must increase. Renewable energy is essential, but Africa cannot rely on it alone. More gas, which is polluting but cleaner than coal, is needed in the mix. But despite happily importing fossil fuels, governments in the West mostly now refuse to finance new fossil fuel projects in Africa or poor countries elsewhere. Those negotiating at COP27 should acknowledge that green growth in the region is a worthwhile goal, but it should not come at the cost of turning on the lights. Infrastructure Disasters in India Opened in 1879, Jaholto Pole, Hanging Bridge, was the biggest tourist attraction in Morbi, a Gujarati town. Now it is the site of India's latest man-made disaster. On October 40th, four days after the pedestrian suspension bridge reopened following maintenance work, its cables snapped plunging several hundred people into the Machu River. On Wednesday, Gujarat will mark a day of mourning for the victims. Oreva, the company which operates the bridge, has blamed people for swaying the walkway, but its employees are among the nine people arrested so far over the collapse. Ahead of state elections in December, opposition parties have alleged corruption over the way Oreva, chiefly a clockmaker, was awarded the bridge contract by the municipality of Morbi and the government of Gujarat. 
which are controlled by the Bhartiya Janta Party. Narendra Modi, India's BJP Prime Minister, has ordered a detailed and extensive inquiry. The Supreme Court will open an investigation on November 14th. Indians will not expect much. Postmortems following similar tragedies have done little to improve governance or shoddy engineering. Spyware Scandal in Greece Officials from the European Parliament are in Greece on Wednesday to probe whether the ruling party used spyware to illegally snoop on politicians and a journalist. The government of Kyriakos Mitsotakis, the prime minister, has denied that it bought the Israeli-made Predator software, which is similar to the Pegasus spyware used by governments including Mexico and Saudi Arabia. But the reluctance of officials to meet with investigators has fueled worries that his new democracy party was involved in an attempt last year to hack the phone of Nikos Androlakis, the leader of Pasok Canal, an opposition party. A Greek parliamentary inquiry ended abruptly last month after government MPs blocked requests by opposition ones to call important witnesses. They included managers at Intellexa, an Israeli-controlled company based in Athens which sold Predator, and Mr. Mizutaki's nephew, the then-chief of the cabinet office. The European Committee may struggle to untangle such a web, but if it finds evidence that the government was behind the eavesdropping, it could blow up Mr. Mitsutakis's chances of winning a general election next spring. Britain Prime Ministers on Screen In a recent self-promotional video, Rishi Sunak, Britain's Prime Minister, appears to be modeling himself on the clean-cut, shirt-sleeved occupant of 10 Downing Street played by Hugh Grant in Love Actually, a romantic comedy. The slickly produced clip has been mocked online, but there are not many other fictional role models for Mr. Sunak to choose from. Whereas cinema's American presidents are often noble and brave, British prime ministers on screen are usually self-serving schemers. Francis Urquhart, Ian Richardson in House of Cards, is a Machiavellian murderer. Adam Lang, Pierce Brosnan in Ghost Rider, is a CIA stooge. Vivian Rook, Emma Thompson, in Years and Years, is a fascist. And in Doctor Who, Harold Saxon, John Sim, is the doctor's arch-enemy, the master. A more benign example is Jim Hacker, Paul Eddington, in Yes, Prime Minister. He was merely an amiable bungler. British screenwriters rarely make their prime ministers heroes. Given the scandals and upheavals of recent months, that is not likely to change. Daily Quiz our baristas will serve you a new question each day this week. On Friday, your challenge is to give us all five answers and, as important, tell us the connecting theme. Email your responses and include mention of your home city and country by 1700 BST on Friday to quizespresso at economist.com. We'll pick randomly from those with the right answers and crown one winner per continent on Saturday. Wednesday. Which character partnered Ilya Kuryakin in the television series The Man from Uncle?
Tuesday, which American skyscraper was built in 1930-31 to become the world's tallest building at the time. Finally, here's the quote of the day from George Bernard Shaw, who died on this day in 1950. Progress is impossible without change, and those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. That's the world in brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening.